feminist bothering for me was really just paying attention, asking questions, you know, owning our mistakes and kind of dealing with our own internalized misogyny and patriarchy and you know, also recognizing that it was really difficult. And, you know, I think a lot of times early on, um, you know, I tried to be perfect and I realized that there's no way to do that. And kind of thinking about the ways in which I could learn from mistakes I was naturally going to make. Welcome to the Wash Your Mouth Out podcast, power, pleasure, and parenting. We are stigma-smashing feminist parents creating a new narrative. Put in your earbuds. This is for you only. This is the place to be entertained, empowered, inspired, and feel seen while you're raising small humans. We are your hosts, Moraya Malat and Madison Young. Tomas Moniz is an author and editor of anthologies such as Rad Dad and Rad Families, as well as the editor and founder of the Rad Dad Zine. His novella, Bellies and Buffaloes, is about friendship, family, and flaming hot Cheetos. He is a bilingual children's book out called Collaboration, La Collaboración, Ways We Work Together, and a new novel, Big Familia, which is out this fall. He's the recipient of the San Francisco Literary Arts Foundation 2016 Award, the 2016 Cancerat Residency, the 2017 Caldera Residency, and others. He's recently been published by Barrel House, Spring 18, and was awarded the 2018 Space on Writer Farm Residency. Welcome, Tomas. Thank you very much for having me. I am so happy to hear your voice. It really <laughs> makes me so, so happy, Tomas. And I know. I miss, I miss you in my neighborhood. I do, too. Like, just hearing your voice makes me ache in my body for Berkeley right now. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> so, um, so let me just dive right in. Uh, Rad Dad Magazine, is, it's really such an important work, and it it seemed to really hold space for rad alternative feminist dad experiences. Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind Rad Dad Magazine and how it came to be? Right. Um, you know, I, I have to give my props to Ariel Gore. That was one of the things that really inspired me to want something that spoke to the experience I was going through as a parent. And I loved Hip Mama. In fact, I just was recently with her and shared with her the story of me and a good friend of mine and our kids going up to her house in Oakland to buy her Hip Mama Zine shirts. Um, and it was just such a great experience and uh, talking with her, getting to know her and being inspired by her. Uh, so after that, you know, meeting other parents, particularly mothers and fathers and talking about uh, how we wanted to parent in different ways than we were parented. And I also came from the zine kind of culture. At the time I was doing these uh, slightly ridiculous little poetry zines. And um, I was like, I'm just going to do a parenting zine. And I put a call out and, you know, had a few people respond and it just kind of picked up after that. And we put out, I think, 27 issues total over the course of 10 years. Wow. That's so incredible. We, we were just chatting with, with Ariel 
nice. the other day. <laughs> I don't Great. know when it will air, which order everything is airing, but um, we love Ariel too. Yes, indeed. Um, Tomas, you said you had said that maybe you might have some poetry to share with us. Um, just kind of keep that on the back burner if we're t- if we mention any topics where you go, oh, I have the perfect right poem for that. Just interrupt us. Ooh, I will. I have the poem for that. I'm so okay. excited about that. But first, you have a new book coming out on Acre Books in October. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the new book? I can. And actually, this is one of my very first conversations about it. So I'm learning as I'm talking about how to address it, right? Because it's been a, it's been, um, a project I've been working on for about five or six years in various wow. forms. Um, I feel like it came from the space or preparing for the space of me being an empty nester. Um, it's the story of a father, a kind of queer single father who's co-parenting and trying to figure out how to let go of uh, his daughter as she goes off to college, as well as to kind of begin to figure out what to do with this new part of his life. And so it's fiction, but clearly it has some uh, connections to my own personal experience. How old are your kids, Tomas? Right. So my kids are 28, uh, 20. Let's get this wrong. 23 and 21. I'm, I'm starting to become the parent who now can't quite remember <laughs> things about their kids, which is really uh, like, it's horrifying for me as like the person who was so involved with Rad Dad. I'm like, I don't know when my kid is coming around my house, you know? So it's just, I'm becoming my, my uh, biggest nightmare. <laughs> what was the name of the, the new book? It's called Big Familia. Big Familia. That's right. And what's the actual date that it is released. It'll be you know? November 19th, uh, 2019. November 19th. And can people um, pre-order it yet? They actually can. And I can provide you a link uh, for the pre-ordering. And that's always one of the best things you can do for independent writers. Oh, cool. Writers so too. we will put that on our website. I appreciate that. You were just hanging out with your kids this this weekend, right? Yes, and my daughter. Your daughter. Pretty <laughs> Something pretty monumental that I'm extremely jealous of yes um so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you were doing what were you doing Tomas well I was I feel guilty about this when it first happened I was like so oh my goodness how did I get tickets but um I took my youngest daughter we went on a real road trip to Los Angeles to see Bikini Kill's first show in what is it 23 years and um you know, Bikini Kill, La Tigra were bands that I definitely played and my daughters and son both knew and usually make fun of me when I sing them out loud. And so it was actually <laughs> kind of really nice to bring her to the, the show because it was just such a kind of a playful, happy, just positive experience in that, in that um, it was at the Palladium. So it was wonderful. And oh, we even bought yeah. uh, shirts I, we were we were deliberating whether it was like the politically right thing to do to like buy shirts from like you know outside the venue versus inside the venue. We, we were having a great time. <laughs> That's incredible. And yeah. and so um, you said you played a lot of of Bikini Kill and La Tigra uh, when your kids were growing up. What role did the Riot Girl movement play in your own relationship with feminism and parenting? Uh, yeah, that's actually a really great question. And I wish I had one. I have a whole zine that was dedicated to the Riot Girl 20-year kind of 
um, anniversary. It was called Riot Parrot, which I loved the title of that zine. And um, nice. yeah, it was um, for personally, I have an essay in there that really kind of talks about uh, particularly kind of dealing with issues of agency and consent and kind of around uh, supporting my, you know, particularly teen daughters going through things that I had like this, I think, internalized notion that were, you know, about shame or judgment. Like, you know, you can't stay out too late. You can't have a boyfriend. Like when my daughter asked me to, my daughter, if my, if her boyfriend could spend the night, I had to really kind of unpack why immediately I was like, absolutely not. And um, yeah, just kind of like thinking about the ways I was treating them differently than maybe I was my, my son when he was their age. So Riot Girl really kind of forced me to kind of address those issues in myself. How has, how does feminism interweave itself into your parenting? Like what does feminist parenting look like to you? Right. Um, yeah, that's a really, really intense and tough question. I think mm-hmm. it's one I that, know. It's, yeah, it's a huge one. <laughs> it is. But it was, it was funny that like, that question came up and I, I was really happy that it came up at a time in Rad Dad when we were when I had, you know, because initially I had started the zine and the first 10 or 12 issues were really kind of all just me editing and putting it out and soliciting articles. And um, at some point though, I realized I didn't want to, you know, I couldn't do this alone. So we had formed kind of a Rad Dad collective here in the Bay Area. And, um, and as a result, we had this one issue that was kind of about what is feminist fathering. And you know, one of the things that the collective did was to kind of gather this really great list of, I think it was like 50 or 60 things that we kind of got from conversations with people in workshops that we were having, or just kind of at parks we were hanging out with and with each other. And, you know, it was really feminist bothering for me was really just paying attention, asking questions, you know, owning our mistakes and kind of dealing with our own internalized misogyny and patriarchy and you know, also recognizing that it was really difficult. And, you know, I think a lot of times early on, um, you know, I tried to be perfect and I realized that there's no way to do that. And kind of thinking about the ways in which I could learn from mistakes I was naturally going to make. So I think feminist parenting to me was like the most helpful thing came from that was like the idea of self-reflection. Beautiful. Um, You know, I was reading some of your book, um, the anthology of sort of little essays and stories, Rad Families. Mm-hmm. And if you don't mind, there's something that I found that actually speaks right to what we're talking about in terms of what does feminist parenting for a dad look like. Um, I'd love to read this and just kind of ask you a couple questions about it. It made me think really deeply about a few things. Um, You say, I've learned that boys do tend to pee all over the toilet seat. Perhaps it's genetic, but they also can be taught to wipe it up. I've also learned, much to my initial confusion, that young women sometimes bleed on the toilet seat, and having to ask them if they did so and can they wipe it up is a conversation no one is really prepared for. In fact, I've learned to speak about menstrual blood with the same calm aplomb as I would about toothpaste, offering on one road trip to pocket a daughter's used tampon and dispose of it in a trash can because she was too afraid to flush it down the toilet at the rest stop that had no wastebasket. 
Wow. I just thought, <laughs> I thought if that isn't femi- a feminist dad parenting in a feminist way, I really don't know what is. Um, <laughs> because I think that that sort of interaction and that sort of coming to being that comfortable um, with women's bodies right. and with bleeding bodies um, is something that doesn't get talked about ever right that's not something that we talk about in fathering it's a story that has so much power i think for just cultural healing if we can just hear more of these like everyday stories of um, these sorts of interactions what do you think you would say to dad identified people in order to any any tips or just thoughts to help them drop the the intense gender separations and the body and sexuality shame you know between these quote-unquote two sexes and um to just more fully be able to to support their children no matter the gender as like whole people right yeah yeah that is uh, that's a beautiful kind of wrapping up of that comment right there because that is the goal i think i'm trying to do and i and i appreciate you reading that uh, passage because it's one of the passages that i've read that essay a few times and sometimes i read that passage and like i get like it's just like silence in the audience and it's mm-hmm. such an uncut like i'm was i wrong and sharing this you know like it was oh it, you were it's not just, it's just interesting no. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes people laugh and they kind of get the kind of uh you know the need to have that kind of conversation and to support our children um because on the flip side i think i've also shared stories where you know i think i've told this one a couple times where you know, I was walking with my daughter and she was about 16 or 17 at the time. And, you know, these two young people walked by her and just totally like, like checked her out. And it's kind of really uncomfortable that made me uncomfortable. And the first thing I felt was like to try and tell my daughter to do something about it, like as if it was her fault. And uh, that was, that was one of those moments that really kind of like hit me hard that like, you know, where does kind of agency and responsibility come from? And like, it should be, have, I, so it's, it's one of those tip areas that's a real struggle. I feel like I do some things correct and other things I, I wish I could do differently. Um, and I think that's kind of maybe what I would share with you know, male identified fathers or is just that like, ha- take the risk, have the conversation, you know, be willing to make the mistake and own it when you do and apologize when you can and um, kind of uh, learn and listen. I mean, I think that's the best that we can do as parents and as partners. That quote made me um, think really hard because the first part of it where you're talking about boys peeing on a seat, um, I noticed, I I had to kind of go, whew, because I I noticed that my son, who's five, um, who, who really is sort of has is floating in the gender spectrum anyway. Um, But I was, when we were working on potty, I was trying to teach him a penis um, owning person to uh, sit to pee because I just did not want pee on the toilet seat. (laughs) And so I was making a really big deal about it eventually because um, we share custody and he has four parents. I didn't win. Mm-hmm. And of course he wanted to stand cause that's fun. Um, right. <laughs> so, you know, and so I've done this, like you need to come over here and wipe up the toilet seat thing. And right. then when you reminded me about blood dripping on the 
you know, what if my child, even if they were older, right, and it's supposed to be even more responsible for right, their messes, exactly, exactly. what if my child drips, you know, blood, <laughs> my, my other child who is going to have a period most likely, um, drips on the toilet seat, <laughs> at, am I going to, is it going to feel like shaming or do I just lovingly like wipe that up and go, who cares? Right. Exactly. And I just thought, whoa, I, I am parenting with my own gender biases and weird right. ideas that I'm going to need to examine a little more too. So thank you. You taught me something very mm -hmm. intense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think, yeah, it's just like I, I, when you talk about that and realizing the ways we do things differently sometimes and reflecting on that, that's the key. I think also listening to this, I'm, I'm just realizing, you know, I think with parenthood, you, you're so moment to moment and right. just trying to like get through the day and the week and the month and the time period in which you're parenting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my oldest kiddo just turned eight wow. and I, and my youngest is two and a half. So I, I'm just like, wow. Yeah. There's this whole tween teen going off to college, like a whole <laughs> whole world of parenting that I haven't even wrapped my head. Yeah, around. you're in the satellite yeah. days. You're, you're in the, <laughs> it's a good time God. for you. <laughs> I won't be sleeping for other reasons yeah. later on. <laughs> this sure. is true. This is true. We were just talking about that a lot with uh, technology. Like, you know, I, I parented in that right before technology was just all encompassing like phones. And so my son's friends had to come to the front door to come you know, grab him. And it's just like, that doesn't happen anymore now. Like kids can don't no longer have to interact with any of the adults at all period. Because right. of and so it's just like a different, like, yeah, wow. Your, your interactions with, with children, which are sometimes so beautiful and also frustrating can be so limited now. One of the things that um, I've experienced like in the last few years is that um men have been coming up to me and asking what they can do to support feminism and women and the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And um, I was wondering what role you see men playing in, in feminism right yeah. now in this, in this time politically. Right. Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I think the, the most and, obvious... Oh, and, and, sorry, and, yeah. just from, and, and also like how we can include our, our children as right. well. Um, in that well I mean I think it's you know it's the, the most like for me the more holding other men accountable and ha you know conf not confronting but like uh, having conversations with other men about behaviors attitudes comments you know consistently that's you know like challenging that kind of male um, I wasn't say brotherhood but this kind of way in which you know I think misogyny gets so loosely passed between men in my experience and this is coming from my own kind of personal experience so you know having those kind of with whether, whether it's with your son and his friends which has been a really kind of difficult mm. moments for me you know because my my son is he's older he's you know running around with lots of you know kids who do a lot of skateboarding a lot of like graffiti and like you know the homophobia there the sexism is kind of both loosely thrown around in like these kind of like subtly like meant to be just playful kind of ways but that but they really have intense, and, and I have a poem for this perfectly, I should say. <laughs> um, how we teach 
the legacy of kind of misogyny for our children, particularly our boy children. Um, but also things like, you know, at the, at the, in environments, standing up for the things like, you know, are bathrooms available for everyone who needs them or childcare being present, whether it's in workplace or organizing events or all that kind of stuff is something I've, I've realized now that I'm not doing the day-to-day parenting like I used to do, this is the kind of thing I can do to mm-hmm. contribute and help. It's like speak up for the needs of parents, whether they're there or not, you know, to have us right. as a group of people consider how we are interacting with. And that goes, you know, along, you know, for all kinds of things, mental health, you know, providers and bathroom facilities, like I said. And so, yeah, just trying, being vocal. So, so what do you do if, um, if you're there and you're hanging out with, with your son and his friends and something comes up that mm-hmm. feels wrong? Do you use it as a, a, a teaching moment? How do you, yeah. what are ways that with the age that he is now that you've integrated that education in a way that doesn't feel like, um, that doesn't feel shaming on, right. on how they're expressing themselves. Well, you see that you nailed it right there. That's for me one of the most difficult because I was parented through like kind of shame and guilt and kind of intimidation. And that's, I've really yeah. not wanted to do that. Uh, and, and I failed. And I know I've, I have relied on that in various contexts in the past before. And so, you know, when I see something like this happening now, it's, I really just try and stick with my own feelings as a, as a, as a way to like have a conversation. So instead of saying, you know, you should, this isn't, you know, like that makes me uncomfortable. And I've, I've also been really impressed sometimes with my, all my children and my son particularly because they're able to talk about feelings in a way that I don't think I was when I was 21 or 22. Like it's really kind of impressive. So I, hopefully some things have changed in this conversation, particularly with men about how they feel. Um, and able to express those feelings because I see it in my son and that makes me, you know, hopeful. So if you, if you hear them say something that's kind of effed up and you know, you're able to kind of go and say, this is the way that that makes me feel. And this is what it makes me worry about. Exactly. Is that what you mean? Exactly. You know, like saying something and I, you know, I'll just be like, Oh, you know, I can't stand that word. It really kind of, bothers me or makes me feel like it's you know it's got other things that are implied and mm-hmm. you know like that's not what I meant you know I'm like I, yeah I know but you know still that word ugh, you know whatever it's trying to like have the conversation in a way that feels like it's not you know like shaming like you said I think that's what I fear the most is shaming my children yeah well you know this podcast is all about like how can we not live in the place of shame for right. sure um I, I love that answer. That's like coming from the feelings and coming from I statements. I think that yeah. that's really amazing. Um, amazing parenting lesson. Do you have that poem with I'm you? I'm actually looking for it right this second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's see. But yeah, so keep asking me a question. <clears throat> All right. I'll, I have another question for you. No. Um, I've been thinking about how I would react if one of my kids when they were like a teenager, or preteen, teenager, or even older, um, told me that they didn't identify as a feminist or couldn't for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's antiquated or it's not as intersectional as it could be or mm-hmm. um, other reasons that might not be quite as understandable to me. Um, but I know that I would have some feelings about that. And I would just love to know 
um, if you've like had that conversation about that word um, mm-hmm. with your kids and, you know, what has come from that. And if not, you know, how you think you would react or what you would say, you know, if you're just mm-hmm. like, you hold this identity and um, believe something and then your child says, I totally don't, you know, this is new territory for me, for sure. My kids are younger. Um, and I think, you know, I know so much about parenting little kids, but I love <laughs> talking to to folks who remember all of that, but, right. but have older kids right now. Yeah, no, I've had, I mean, I've learned to listen to my children, particularly my daughters about, you know, uh, identifying things in terms of like a feminist critique, which I've, you know, as I came from kind of the nineties, uh, academic realm, feminism was like all the rage. It certainly impacted my way I think about pop culture. And so I love having those conversations that they've also provided opportunities to be, you know, to difficult opportunities. Like for example, like, you know, the me too movement and all that kind of stuff that happened, like talking with my children about that. And it's kind of also I've, it was really intense to hear about my children's um, experiences with harassment and um, in ways that I guess I didn't even, I mean, I, I know obviously that, the, that they have such experiences out in the world, but like to hear them reflect on them and was just like, it was incredible. And also then my mother was then, you know, we were having conversations and she shared kind of experiences in her life that I, mm. I grew up not even knowing about. And so that was a really intense, it still is like, uh, I'm, I'm spending more and more time with my mother whose partner passed away and um, kind of just realizing how little I knew of her experience as a woman in the world. Uh, Cause I just see her co- solely as like my mom. Right. Um, so it's been a, it's been um the last few years has been really intense having those conversations, though they've been consistent and kind of feel like, honestly, it's also weird that my daughter sometimes is a little bit of, my youngest daughter tends to, she just got in the mills, which I'm very excited about. Um, and she's, uh, but she could be a little bit curmudgeonly about like some of the kind of pop, happy, feel good feminist kind of attitudes that are out there, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been, I mean, like I said, I think it's just been a pleasure to get to see them. And that's one of the pleasures of parenting older children is to see them kind of come into fruition and think about their own attitudes and ideas and how they slightly differ from yours or how they challenge yours. And you know. mm-hmm. So you're hearing like a little bit of pushback on, um, or and, and critique of um, the feminism of the past and maybe the present. Right, right. Sure. Like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to badmouth Mills at all, because I'm not. But it was funny, like, my daughter got some, you know, welcome package from them, and it had some tea. And it's, I loved it. And she was just like, oh, God, you know, like, just like I was like, oh, my God, it's a tea party. Let's, let's, let's have tea. <laughs> She's like, this is just horrible. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. (laughs) But, you know, I will say with my, I've had more of this, like my, my middle daughter's in, she's kind of in the art world in New York city. So having conversations around like feminist art has been really great. Like I'll be like, Oh my God, I've never heard of this artist before. And she's like, Oh, of course, you know, like she knows all about this stuff. It's been really nice. And my younger daughter through music, she's really into music. And so that's been kind of, you know, the interesting ones where it's like, these lyrics are kind of really kind of problematic and I don't know. And, you know, we've got to sit like, how do we like this? You know, how do we 
how do we like the art from people who are, you know, perhaps not people we'd want to get to know personally. And, and there's no easy answers for that one, but it's, we're having those conversations. I think that's what counts. Oh, yeah. those questions sound so awesome yeah. and amazing. I can't wait until kids are old enough right. to have those sort of critiques. I don't know if you're feeling this yet, Maria. Maria has a, a nine-year-old as well, uh -huh. and I have a, an eight-year-old. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my eight-year-old is now old enough that we are able to watch certain films and media and I've, that we have, that she has enough of, that we're able to talk about it afterwards. Right. Like, I liked this film, but I found this part to be problematic. Like, I felt mm -hmm. uneasy about this or, you know, I, I didn't like this dynamic, you know, right. and, and, and being able to talk about that now. And that feels really good to now right. be at a place where, you know, we also didn't normalize it from a young age and then mm -hmm. just consume the media and not talk about it, but kind of waiting until she was old enough to start to introduce some media that, you know, if there's an element that we're not crazy about being like, yeah, I liked yeah. the story, but I didn't dig this thing. Why did they have to do that? You know, right. or, mm -hmm. um, yeah. For us, I noticed that more in terms of music because I don't censor yeah. any right. music. And I've actually started to listen to a whole lot of hip hop made by women identified people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's like some of them, some of it sounds, you know, a whole lot better than hip hop music made maybe by um, a lot of dudes out there. <laughs> um, but there's also some problematic stuff. So I listen to stuff and I don't censor anything for the kids and, and the stuff that comes on the radio that I, that even might make me cringe even more. My kids want to listen to, you know, top 40 on the radio. Yeah. Um, there have definitely been some songs that come up. Um, I forget that there's one song that's basically about date rape um, that is very widely played. Um, and we had uh, we've had a couple of very intense conversations because I know that my kids have heard that song all the way through, especially being with other parents right. and all of that. But each time that that particular one comes on, I kind of have to say, no, you remember, you know, we had this conversation why I can't really listen to this right now. Mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, music has brought has been able to bring up a whole lot of topics. And then I think with the films, I've noticed with my nine-year-old that um, if I say nothing about something problematic, pretty much within about 24 hours, it will come out of her mouth. Yeah. Um, if I just say nothing, like she, it, she's will be processing it for a while before she wants to talk about it. And she'll kind of like formulate her, her words and what seems like almost like really thoughtful and like very academic seeming for, <laughs> for, but she, you know, she wants to really formulate what she really thinks about it. Um, yeah. I think that this, that just speaks to like from a very young age, we've been talking about these things. Yeah. Yeah, there's this one movie called Sing. I don't know if you yes. saw Sing, but um, 
it's a like a singing competition and this koala they're all different animals you know and there's <laughs> oh, like a koala it, it's a cartoon bear. It, yeah it's an animated okay. movie animated okay okay and so they're having a big singing competition and it's his last his last chance he's like a starving artist you know he's trying to get a, a big audience in there so he doesn't lose the theater that he has all his money sunk into you know <laughs> very relatable right. um <clears throat> but there's um a part where one of the contestants uh, contestants uh his family they're they're gorillas and they um rob banks that's that's their profession and um <laughs> and so the the young boy doesn't want to rob the bank and is supposed to be the getaway car and isn't there and so his his father ends up in jail and we like pause the movie and we start talking about the prison industrial system we're like right. do you, we remember why um let's say oh this is this is not making me feel so good let's talk about this and um and you know and we've had many conversations about police and being an ally for right. folks and um and how it's never okay to cage anyone right. um and uh having that conversation so um i feel like even when it's you know it's like interwoven so much there's always like you know there's an element of, of violence or something like this um cops and robbers right. kind of situation but i think um when things come up like that i always try to go back to the idea that um there are no good guys and bad guys mm -hmm. right. and um and there were all complex characters that have a motivation for what we're doing and yeah. um yeah yeah i agree have those conversations. It's the number one thing. <laughs> Even when they feel uncomfortable and you don't know. And that's yeah. what I was saying. Like in the past, like I realized I've tried to have conversations like that and have said like ultimately things I, I think I disagreed with later on when I thought about them. Mm. And then I'd have to go back and be like, you know, actually, you know, I've done that. Or like, or like I think um, you were talking about censoring. Like there's been times I've thought like maybe I'll just try and, you know, let's avoid this and try to like not let them have access to it and then realize later on that like that's you know, that's, that's a, there's a, there's a flaw in that parenting idea as well. And, and so, yeah, just having, taking the risk. I was wondering if you were able to find the poem. I did. Oh, oh yay. Um, yes. And this is, yeah, this is, okay. I can, do you want me to just read it and yeah. All right. Uh, this is called, do you understand your own words as boy child? I loved rough play. The chase and yowl of tag, the arrogance to face speeding baseball and catch it without flinching, making my father proud. The crazy way dodgeball works, looking one way and slipping, slinging purple rubber ball another way. Any one fair game, but one game haunts me, my favorite. Played with a group of boys, though occasionally a few girls, if we were lucky. We threw football high into air. Whoever caught it ran away, ran for their life, laughing and screaming because every other kid tried to tackle them. And usually every other kid did. A massive writhing mound of prepubescent bodies piling on top of each other, 
it was the greatest. Smear the queer. My dad called it, and so did everyone else I knew. For years, and one day, my mother asked me how I got a bloody nose and a ripped shirt. Playing smear the queer, I boasted. To this day, I remember the look on my mother's face. She asked, do you understand your own words? All I wanted to do was hide. Because once you understand what something means, you cannot outrun that knowledge. So there you go. Um, yeah, and I, like, I've read that poem a bunch of times. I did this zine kind of unpacking masculinity and kind of the relationship between father and son and my relationship between my son. Um, and just, yeah, the, like I was trying to think, how did I learn a lot of these things I've internalized? And when I think back about something innocent and playful like this, where, you know, the queer one was the one who was kind of tackled and confronted and, you know, overwhelmed. Like it just, how that, that what behavior did that normalize? Mm. And this was, uh, this poem is in, in one of your zines? Yeah, it's in a zine called Stay Boy, which is, like I said, it's the one about uh, parenting and masculinity. Are you digging this podcast? We sure are. Hey, guess what? We finally have our Patreon account up at patreon.com slash wash your mouth out. That is where you can go and show us the love, become part of our community, help keep this podcast moving forward, give us energy to take it into the future. And we have some really exciting guests coming up that I think are going to be shockers maybe even and I know that you're going to love it so go ahead and go to patreon.com slash wash your mouth out look at those levels see what we're offering see where you can chip in and show us how much you love this podcast thank you back to our show was there any other poetry that you had wanted to read for us yeah I got a I got one or two more I can do. Um, yes, and this one's called uh, What Things Will Do to Survive. My father called me over, bent down, eye to eye. He stared at me. I tried to escape. I knew the tricks he played. Later, I'd come to know these as attempts to love. He held me close in the yard. He said, Mijo, I found you something. In his palm, a vibrant green chameleon in the process of changing to earthy brown, the color of my dad's skin. He said, grab the tail. I did. My father let it go. I felt the lizard swing, sway, then watched the body fall. The tail left wiggling in my fingers. I screamed, dropped it, put my hand to mouth. My dad said like fact, you killed it, boy. He picked up the tail still thrashing, still acting as if it was complete, a whole body. He tried to give it to me and said, stop crying, the lizard is fine, but it's crazy what some things will do to survive. Oh, so, yeah. there's a lot in there. there. Oh my God, <laughs> wow. There is indeed, yeah. So it's been, it's, yeah, like I said, I think it's been one of the ways I've dealt with kind of empty nesting is, you know, sadly is, because I think, like Madison said, when you're in the midst of that everyday parenting, it's, you know, 
you're being pulled in a lot of different directions. And sometimes, you know, what you're doing is just getting through the day-to-day moments. And now I've been able to kind of step back and think like, wow, how did I, how did I do this, you know, work? How did I, why did I make these mistakes and not others? And how did I learn to grow? And so I think it's been this nice process of like reflecting back on my own experiences, Um, both through writing like memoir, like I did with Rad Dad and also learning to kind of play with fiction and the way in which it allows you a little bit more freedom and movement to talk about some themes. I feel like in that poem, there's some, some toxic masculinity (laughs) happening Uh, and and some, uh, and a little bit of gaslighting, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I could just, there's just so much in there and there's like sweetness in a way too. So, the, the sort of complicatedness of parenting and yeah. being the child of a parent too is all in there. Well, especially like coming from like the patriarchal environment that I did where I felt like you're right. Like it was a lot of, uh, it was very toxic. And at the same time, there were moments that, you know, obviously you're chi- as a child, you really kind of look for those moments to, to love your parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one of the things that I, I, I know that, um, much of your work, you've, how many zines have you made, Tomas? <laughs> Quite a few, uh, I know. A lot. <laughs> a lot. Um, you know, I love the zine community and I love the zine world. And I think that, I think it's a whole world that many folks are not even aware of, right. especially these kids coming up these days. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, you know, I mean, I, I, I remember just like the smell of the Xerox right. copies mm-hmm. and, and making zines and chapbooks and, and like that whole tactile, like labor of love experience and also the freedom in writing whatever the fuck you want, like, right. and not, um, looking for approval from a publisher or an agent. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and like the DIY movement and how it's played a role in your work as an artist and an activist. Uh, It's been crucial. I I love it. I love that, um, you know, like I think what you said, it it really is, uh, it's a place where you can take risks. You can see the growth of people, which I think is something we miss when we deal with kind of mainstream um, curated art for us. You don't see the the mistakes. You don't see the growth, the progression that you can. And like some of the zinesters that I followed for years and years and years, like Ariel Gore, like Cindy Crabb, like these amazing people who are doing work and you can see the growth of their work over, you know, a decade. Um, so yeah, I, I find, and you know, I would imagine, I would say that a lot of um, the people that became mentors to me, I met through the zine community. And um, it's also given you a certain ability to be okay with things not as, um, you know, they don't need to be as perfect, which I like. And, you know, coming from parenting, that's a really beautiful thing because <laughs> things are never as perfect as you want them to be in your household and your life and your, you know, what you're doing with your children. So it, it kind of dovetailed together nicely. Um, and as I've done some publishing in kind of the more mainstream environments, I, whenever I come back to zines, I always really appreciate that 
I'm just going to do it my way. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, I don't have to worry mm-hmm. about it. And so there's a, there's a, a certain sense of kind of liberation that I, I appreciate in zine making. I love that. I love that. There is so much liberation. I was just thinking, oh my gosh, I did. I had a zine. It was a long time ago. There were only Mm -hmm. a few episodes. I was thinking it probably, it was distributed in just a couple of places that I took it to from Vancouver to about the middle of Oregon and nowhere else. And looking back, I get to go, oh, some of that might have embarrassed me. And guess what? There's like, there's no trace of it anymore. (laughs) You never know. There's some good zine libraries right now. It's possible, I guess, but you know, I probably don't have to look at it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> There's a, there. That's right, pretty cool. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that notion too. Like every now and then, I'll get a letter from someone who read a zine that I put out, that I'm like, oh god, that zine is still out in the world. Like, oh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, that's where I want to be. Like, I've grown. Look at other things. <laughs> but, but you know, whatever. It's it's a nice it's a nice reminder of who I was and where I came from. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Tomas, so much of your work focuses on alternative cultures and parenting. Mm -hmm. Um, What advice do you have for parents that are feeling exiled from their, you know, previous and current community, you know, maybe artistic or alternative culture community for for now being parents and not feeling like they fit in anymore there or with the suburban soccer moms, dads? Um, How do we find our community and build our community as parents. And what was that experience for you like in finding community once you're a parent? Yeah. Um, Well, first thing I would say is like, it sounds really amazing that you're doing podcasts like this. And this is one of the key ways that, you know, when I was coming up as a parent, podcasts weren't around, but this is now a way in which I think to find kind of information, to find uh, people who are out there maybe in your community or, you know, through the internet that can be role models to you. And I'm always about reach out. Like I love writing letters. I l- that was one of the best things is when I'm sure you're aware of China Martins and her zine, the future generation. Like I can remember writing her a letter. Re- it was one of the first times I had read a zine that was kind of like talking about radical politics and parenting at the same time. And I, and she wrote me back. And to this day, like we're still friends and we communicate. Um, so like risk, saying hello and i would do that even with when i was out in the world anytime i saw any other you know particularly young male fathers like wanting to kind of just engage with them um to build that community right to say that i see you as parent because sometimes you know that so often you're either seen as uh the child care provider or you're like glorified that you're out with your kid and you feel uncomfortable because you're getting that kind of attention so just to kind of make connections and say hello. That's what I would suggest. Mm. We do have a, we have our um, little community on Facebook, which is as good as we've got for now. um, That's kind of just starting up. So I think we can probably have some, probably need to have some documents to help people sort of find each other locally too. Yeah, that's great to remind us that, you know, the, the pot, this podcasting community is mm-hmm. um, a way that you can, can find like-minded parents. Right. And playgrounds are great. And like setting up like, you know, uh, kids, kid toy swapping. We did all that kind of stuff. It was wonderful. It was really a great, it was, you know, in some ways I still, I miss the kind of, inti- not intimacy, but I miss the kind of community, the collaboration that, um, you know, 
when I was in the midst of that parenting between like five and 15, you just really needed other people. I'm sure it's a little bit different for you right now, but so when you were in the thick of it, mm-hmm. how did you balance your creative life right. and raising kids? What are your like writer parenting <laughs> hacks of right. like how you found that time? Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, well, I wrote about parenting. It was kind of what I needed. <laughs> you know, like it, it allowed me to kind of blend those two things together. And I mean, also I, I, I know it's, as someone who does a lot of writing, you didn't want to be pigeonholed. So I would also try to do other zines, like I said, my poetry zines. And, um, you know, I had a wonderful partner and we collaborated in terms of like giving each other space. Um, We shared vacation time at one point where like she did some traveling on her own and I did some, because I was also a really young parent. Like I was, you know, 20 and 21, we were, we were, had a one-year-old. So, um, is as we got into our early 30s, we, we you know, tried to lean on each other to give ourselves opportunities that we didn't, you know, we couldn't have collectively. But also then to, you know, force things like the Anarchist Book Fair in the Bay Area didn't have childcare for the first four or five years mm-hmm. I went to it. And I met other parents and we both kind of said, we can organize it. And of course we did organize it because, you know, that usually stuff falls to parents. And then a few yeah. years later, we were like, actually, we're going to not organize it now. <laughs> And you need to step up and figure out other, you know, other ways to have it organized. And they, and yeah. they did, you know, so we, we learned as we were doing. And I think, you know, so it feels to me like communities can learn to, to find ways to welcome in kind of not only parents, but elders, you know, and there's ways that we need to make our movements multi-generational and not absolutely mono-generational mm-hmm. because that, that will never work. Yeah. It was, for example, bring it all the way back home, the Bikini Kill concert. There was like, there was like the, the, the age range there was amazing, right? It was uh, really, really nice. I bet. <laughs> so, Tomas, you have um, a children's book yes. out last year, yeah? No, it came, it came out, out um, God, when did it come out? Not recently, the last, well, maybe last year, but less than a year in total. Less than a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is called Collaboration, mm-hmm. Collaboration, Ways to Work Together. Um, and it's bilingual. Um, I haven't been able to see this yet. Uh, I know, I, I want to check it out now. I totally want to check it out. And I don't know if you can like read a little bit to us if you have it there with you. But I also want to know, um, you know, to write, it, it sounds like it's maybe for younger kids. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a picture book, so it's got like some really great illustrations by a person I met in the zine community. We worked on something. We collaborated on a zine together initially on on a, another project, and then I wrote this one poem that she really liked, and we were like, "This would be a great kids book." And so we kind Aww. of worked together, and we put it. It's really nice. It's called collaboration, and it is a collaboration. It is. Very exactly. sweet. And when we had our, our, we, she sadly moved to France. So, but she did come back here and we had the best event where like, uh, it's also translated by my partner who's bilingual into Spanish. So we had this like event where Alicia was doing the drawings. I read it in English. My partner read it in Spanish. And then we got the kids involved with the reading. It was, it was a great event. Oh, Oh, that sounds great. Sweet. So how did you, I mean, 
you had sort of made a poem and then that's how you decided to, to bring the book in. Cause I thought, Oh, that's so interesting. You're still thinking about little kids books mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. your, your kids are older now. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that explains my, the answers to my question, which is like, why are you still thinking about writing books for little kids? Is it, is that it came out of a poem, right? It came out of a poem, but I will also say like one of the th ways that I used to always challenge people to think about, you know, their relationship to children in their lives was, even if you don't have a child that you're responsible for, like what is your relationship to children? Like it's something to consider. And so, you know, my, I, now that I'm in that space where I don't have to parent on a day-to-day -day basis, but I certainly want to kind of think about, you know, where in my life do I get to interact with children? Where in my life do I get to interact with elders? Like where, do, where can I, where can I, cause that'll benefit me. I'm a better person when I, when I'm forced to like get out of my own space and think about how I collaborate in the world mm. with other people so mm -hmm. that, that was certainly something in my mind can do, can you share a little bit of that yeah. book just a tiny bit so that people can see if maybe they want to check it out and it's really nice because the images all kind of bleed together and there's this little bee that goes through most all the pages so it was fun to like have <laughs> watch the artist come up with her version of the poem so it's basically variations on like ways that we can collaborate so yeah i'll read a few pages um the way you cluck your tongue at a baby and the way the baby drools back, the way the heart beats and the blood flows, the way flower attracts bee and we get so much sweet honey. The way a recipe works, we add one thing to another thing and create a new thing like cake. And then hold on, I'm just turning the pages here so you'll hear it. But also the way mistakes happen, the cake burns or tastes too salty and the way we clean up and the way we try again. I'm not gonna stop there. Oh, sweet. Aww. So yeah, and then it becomes slightly, it's funny because it became slightly, and I've had a couple events now. And so it starts off with these kind of really kind of everyday universal experiences of kind of being in the world. And then at the end of it, we try to, you know, Tie, it is published with AK Press. And so, you know, we wanted to think about things like how do we collaborate to make a better environment, a better world. And so we begin to bring in things like that and like thinking about- Oh, I love that. So Starting with the personal and then going universal. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, I love that. Um, there's this great children's book that I really love that um, is a Maya Angelou um, poem with uh -huh. paintings by Basquiat. I have it. And I love it. Yes, it's I great. love that too. Yeah, my kids, I mean, it has a few rips in it now because we've <laughs> had it since Emma was born. So, you know, eight years now, but um, yeah. um, but I, I love that book. And I think poetry lends itself so well to uh, exactly. children's book. I can't wait to mm -hmm. check out your book. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Your letter writing. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I love that in your bio and everywhere that you look up your name, you have a PO box, a call <laughs> to action. Like, yes, please. You know, it, it's like, I, I find your PO box more than I do your, your email. Thank you. That I, means, that's the best comment I've ever gotten. I'm going to share that with all my students. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's so radical. Right, it's completely right. radical. Um, you know, I, I've, always loved writing letters and receiving letters mm -hmm. but it often feels like technology and texting and messaging and social media have replaced letters and mm -hmm. and even phone calls really yeah. Yeah. and 
Um, so what do you think is the value and the connective experience that we receive from written letters and writing letters that differs from online communication? Right. Yeah. I, and well, and this goes back to the zine world. One of the best things that came from the zine world was that, like I said, I would write a letter to someone, there'd be an address and I'd, and I'd write, and this of course maybe was also like, you know, right before email took over everything. So there was still a sense of that. But one of the things that I've always appreciated was that people put an address that you could write something. And one of the things I always found frustrating was the kind of separation between these like writers or artists that I really loved when I would buy their books, but there'd be no way to contact them, to write them a letter, you know, this, even this, to say thank you. And so um, I think as I transitioned to more to things in publishing world, I was like, please add, you know, this P for a long time, I actually had my home address on there and I would get lots of letters at home. And it was wonderful. But, you know, I think at some point I realized maybe that's not the best, you know, thing to put out yeah. in the world. <laughs> you know, and so, I, and I also recognized like it was, you know, like in my privilege to say like, just write me a letter when there's some, some people who let's say don't want their home address out in the world. So uh, if you can get a PO box, you can share it with people. Cause I think it really provides this opportunity for, um, reflection when you write a letter in a way that an email doesn't. And I feel like when I write an email, I want a response real quick. With a letter, mm. I'm like, I'm willing to sit and wait. And when I do get a response, or when I do just get a letter from someone anonymously I, or, that I don't know, um, those are the best feelings. Like those make my day. Even if they're a little postcard that says, I've gotten a number of letters that say, like, it, you know, like you, you gave me your address, it's in your zine. So here's what I love about, you know, Sandra Bullock, because I, I was obsessed with Sandra Bullock and wrote a whole zine and poems about her. So I get these stories from people and it's been the best. Oh, okay, so your P.O. Box is? P.O. Box 3555, Berkeley, California, 94703. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we like to end on... Um, on a special question and it's really just whatever pops into your head um what is the most challenging part of parenthood or what has been the most challenging part of parenthood for you and then also your favorite part my favorite book your favorite part of parenting. Oh, favorite part. okay um wow there's so many challenging parts i think the the, the more the most challenging part was to be honest, was letting go, was really kind of, you know, the need mm -hmm. to realize that your children needed to be, you know, on their own more and more and more, and they needed you less and less and less. And um, it forced me to learn to be kind of silent and listen in a way that I think ultimately was very beneficial for my own growth as a person. But, you know, when you seem to be the one who gets to do all the storytelling when they're nine, that changes real quick when they're 13 and 14 and 15. And so, you know, it becomes more collaborative, which I thought was, maybe that's the best thing is the collaboration that comes out after you let go. Mm. Oh, that's so sweet. Um, I love thank that. You. Thank you so much for being with us and for your thoughtful and really poetic answers to just about everything. <laughs> well, thank um, you very really much for giving it. me the space and, and he, you know, it's nice to come back to this world because it feels like in some ways I, you know, I worked hard to be able to, to end Rad Dad in a way that allowed other stories and zines and books to come out. But it's, you know, it's really nice when I get reminded of the work I did for so long. Absolutely. And, and can folks, 
are those zines available on your site or somewhere they are available on my yeah. site you can i do have a number of back stock that i you know whip out every right. now and then and the of course the anthologies are both available at any bookstore if you ask for it mm -hmm. yeah and and i have a i have a p.o box you can write me and i even have an email you can email me <laughs> <laughs> okay so the email is tomas.moniz m-o-n-i-z at gmail.com and um your website is uh it's I think it's my name, Tomas Moniz. Yeah. Dot com. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thank you so much. It really Thank is so much. good to hear yeah. your voice. It's nice to hear you. Nice to meet you, Tomas. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you Stay so much. You've been listening to Wash Your Mouth Out Podcast. You can find us on the web at washyourmouthoutpodcast.com. Come follow us on Instagram Wash at washyourmouthoutpodcast and on Twitter at mouthoutpodcast. Wash your mouth out.